Have you been told, like I have, that solutions to environmental problems are not free? Automakers claimed they would spend more than $200 billion to comply with the targets, potentially endangering more than a million jobs. That the environment may be fragile, but so is our economy. Is that trade-off worth it? Is the harming of the U.S. economy that a lot of people point to and the president laid out some of the reasons why, is it worth this end goal? That we can't afford to address issues like climate change. Critics say the sweeping new rules are yet another executive branch power grab that will end up driving up the cost of electricity in some areas by as much as 20 percent, while putting thousands of American jobs at risk. My name is Katherine Rehimaki, and my guest today has no time for those arguments. Marilyn Waite is with the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation working on clean energy finance. She leads the foundation's climate finance portfolio, and she'll tell us more about that in a minute. Marilyn, thank you so much for joining us on All for Earth. Thank you for having me, Catherine. I'm curious what your job title means, and if you can describe for me, a financial novice, what your work looks like at the Hewlett Foundation. So the climate finance portfolio is all about mobilizing the capital we need to solve climate change. So we need at least $1 trillion U.S. dollars globally and annually to solve climate change to meet the Paris Agreement by 2050. So that's our minimum. That's our baseline. And right now, we need to approximately double or triple the amount we're currently spending towards those solutions. So, you know, that sounds expensive. Um, I mean, do you – we sort of started with this idea that solving environmental issues are too expensive. Do you see that as kind of a, a net expense or are there financial benefits to that work? So the good news is that we have all the capital we need to solve this. Um, if you look at um, the global pools of capital, so the stock we have globally, we have over $100 trillion sitting in our bank deposits. So our everyday accounts, people, businesses. We have $130 trillion in asset ownership. So that's the pension funds, mutual funds, insurance companies primarily. Um, continuing along that, that spectrum, we have you know, roughly $300 billion in our multilateral development banks and development financial institutions. We have just under $2 trillion in our private equity funds. And we have about $200 billion in our venture capital funds. So if we can mobilize, let's say, even 1% of our bank deposits, we would have met that goal. So the problem is not the availability of capital. It's the, the pricing of risk. It's the perception of risk. It's the uh, short-term thinking that dominates the sector. So we have the capital. It's actually not that much money when you think about how much we have available. So that's interesting. I want to um, come back to the short term versus long term in just a bit. Um, so, but first, you know, what is the role of the Hewlett Foundation in all of that? Because they don't have that one hundred trillion dollars, presumably. Right. <laughs> only one. Only one. We we only need one trillion. <laughs> yes, <laughs> globally and annually. Um, yes. Yeah, so we we have a just under ten billion in terms of our assets under management. So. Um, yes, globally, philanthropy foundations um, represent less than 1% of asset ownership. So definitely cannot be solved through philanthropy by itself. What we can do is use our capital in innovative ways to show the market that this is not risky, um, that this can be done um, with profits at the right risk return profiles. Um, what we can do is um, fund enabling the enabling environment and infrastructure to support sustainable finance. And so that's what we do. Um, so for example, on the, the 
venture capital end, there's a number of stumbling blocks, uh, we call them valley of deaths, um, that stop technologies from being taken to market after research and development. And so we've put money into um, an impact fund called um, the Prime Coalition Impact Fund that has a climate impact first thesis. So they will only invest in a startup um, whose technology or whose solution can mitigate roughly one gigaton of carbon annually at scale. Um, moving along to the asset owners, owners and managers, um, we are providing concessional capital to a fund managed by um, one of the world's largest private asset managers, BlackRock, um, to provide that guarantee so that they can move their their money into emerging markets for climate solutions. Um, we are also helping, for example, to capitalize a new credit union in the United States called the Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. And this credit union is providing loans for electric vehicles, for um, distributed solar, rooftop solar, for energy efficiency equipment, for ground source heat pumps and air source heat pumps. So is climate and energy really dominating this field? Um, are, is there um, room for sustainable finance projects for, say, agriculture or water or biodiversity? Well, sustainable finance definitely is much larger than climate. I would say um, climate change provides us with that um, now moment. So we have less than 12 years now to really have an impact and mitigate climate change before we see the worst effects happen. Um, so that provides us with the impetus to solve this. So if we, for example, replace our fossil fuel energy systems with renewable energy systems, then we can actually solve not only climate change, but we're also solving air pollution problems. So if there's also intersectionality with solving climate change. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So, you know, are there different models for foundations? Um, you know, Hewlett um, Foundation is not the only group working on sustainability issues. Um, do you see other philanthropic groups um, having an impact? Absolutely. And there's a lot of collaboration. We have a number of um, funder collaboratives um, informally and formally. And so we definitely collaborate with others on, on mostly everything we do. Um, we are one of the foundations that will make public our strategies. So oftentimes we become um, leaders in um, galvanizing others and bringing people together so that we can have more impact in whatever we're trying to achieve. Um, so for example, there's a climate finance partnership, which I alluded to before, where the IKEA Foundation and the Grantham Foundation has, is joining us, um, the Hewlett Foundation, in actually uh, providing this concessional capital um, along with some uh, DFIs, development financial institutions, to a private asset managers, uh, managed assets. Um, we're also working with others on something called the Platform for Carbon Accounting Financials, or PCAF, P-C-A-F, and that is a carbon accounting methodology and tool that's completely bank-led, um, allowing the banks to actually measure for each asset class, um, their carbon intensity, um, and disclose that, and then agree to reduce that year on year to meet the Paris Agreement. You know, you've mentioned the Paris Agreement a couple times. Um, are, are you optimistic that we can reach those targets, um, given the right kind of financial instruments? I have to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, 
I think that we can, this is definitely in reach. We have, we know what we have to do. That's, that's the good thing about it. We know exactly what we have to do. I also was one of the senior research fellows at Project Drawdown, where we modeled and forecasted um, the top 80 solutions to solving climate change. Um, we, we know the cost of it. We know how much we can mitigate from it. We have the roadmap. We just need to now execute on that and um, have the financing and investment to support that. I don't think you can solve it with just finance or investment. You also need policy. You also need behavioral change. So it's really an all hands on deck kind of problem, which makes it a wicked problem. But I, I have to be optimistic that we can get this done. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if we can kind of zoom out a little bit and just think about some of the conflicts that um, I think arise in finance generally and maybe in sustainable finance specifically. Um, you know, it's always struck me that when it comes to finance, there's kind of an inherent conflict between shareholder interests and societal interests at large. Do you see those conflicts and how do you try to navigate that? So shareholders can can be short-term thinkers, not always, but they definitely can be. And so corporations have to look beyond shareholders. They have to look at employees and they are driven by that. They have to look at customers and they are driven by that. I really like the definition of a stakeholder by the Project Management Institute, which is about perception. So any entity that perceives themselves to be impacted by your business is a stakeholder. And so corporations really need to look at the, the wider um, stakeholders, not just the shareholders. And definitely for the shareholders, especially the large passive investors like Vanguard, they can step up and, and vote in favor of resolutions that bring ESG, environmental, social and governance factors and climate skills to boards. Do you think that, you know, shareholders really need to become better educated about what the companies they're investing in are doing? Yes. Well, better educated. Also, companies have to provide that information, right? So there's a data transparency issue. Um, one initiative currently underway is called the Climate Action 100 Plus. So an, an analyst at one of the largest pension funds was looking at the carbon intensity of their um, of their assets and um, their companies, and they found that actually roughly 80% of emissions was coming from these top 100, 150 companies globally, um, publicly listed companies. And so the idea is that if you could focus on those, you know, relatively short list of companies and work with the investors and the investors then work with their companies to work on decarbonization plans, you could actually um, have a concentrated way of decarbonizing quickly. And so that's what the Climate Action 100 campaign is all about. And so they're actually working with these shareholders of these companies to decarbonize. And that starts with having this data transparency around the carbon emissions of those companies, both the direct emissions and the financed emissions, if you're a bank, for example. You know, do you also see sort of conflict on a, I guess the, the way I think of it is a temporal scale. So generations, um, older generations versus younger generations. I think you're a millennial, so you may feel that <laughs> generational <laughs> conflict in particular. Um, you know, how, how does that get navigated given sustainability goals that may be um, – far-reaching, impacting people of different ages differently, um, and, and people who aren't necessarily born yet. 
So I'm an old millennial. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Definitely sustainable development forces us into the intergenerational conversation. It's all about what current generations are borrowing from future generations. And we see this playing out with student protests and younger generation lawsuits. Um, So there is definitely that element. And I think we need everyone at the table, like I said, all hands on deck. So people from all different backgrounds, all geographies, and all generations at the table to solve this. We can't really have solutions that only pertain to one generation or another, because really this is about the future generations. You know, Silicon Valley sort of has this reputation of not being necessarily a diverse place. Um, I think that, you know, you and I have talked about that being true for venture capital efforts, um, that they're not diverse. And the environmental world is not a particular diverse place either. Um, Do you find that um, in dealing with a wicked problem like climate change that that lack of diversity is problematic? Absolutely. So less than 5% of venture capital in the United States goes to women-led startups. And when you add color to that, it's closer to 0%. And -hmm. so I don't know how we do anything with 0% of the population, right? (laughs) It's it's astonishing. And we know that there's higher return on equity for companies with um, high gender and ethnic and racial diversity. We, We have the data. We know it. So there's really no excuse. Men and women have to start investing in women and black, indigenous and people of color at a much bigger scale. Um, I think it's very ironic that the environmental community um, is still struggling with diversity, equity and inclusion because biodiversity is a core tenet of environmentalism. And we know that ecosystems die with monoculture. If all the the plants are exactly the same, it's not a healthy ecosystem. (laughs) So we should definitely be the the leaders uh, on the contrary of incorporating diversity, equity, and inclusion in our um, society, in our organizations, in our companies. Um, You know, have you found being in Silicon Valley that, I don't know, the way I describe it would be or think about it is uh, this tech mindset that, you know, we have the answer and that answer is about disrupting the old ways of doing things. Um, It's interesting because you said the word disruption. And what is encouraging about the current financial system is that there is this positive disruption happening. And it's not really coming from Silicon Valley. It's coming from different parts of the world and different parts of the country. Um, So there's a network for banking institutions um, that are pushing sustainability. Some are B Corp, some are benefit corporations, some are members of the GABV, which is the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. Some are credit unions. Um, So we're witnessing these innovations, um, robo-advisory and other fintech solutions that support sustainable development goals like climate change. Um, So we're seeing that throughout the country and throughout the world. And it's not really concentrated here in Silicon Valley for that financial disruption or or fintech solutions around climate change, innovation and sustainability. I I think that's um, a great segue into where I want to finish our conversation today, um, which is thinking about practical solutions that our listeners and I can take. Um, My first question along those lines is whether you feel like the onus is on institutions or is it on individuals and the individual decisions that they make? So back to the all hands on deck, I think <laughs> we have to have both <laughs> um, top down, bottom up, sideways. It has to it has to all come together. Um, and so 
the various practical solutions for each person, one of the simplest things you can do is bank with a sustainable institution, a credit union, a bank like Amalgamated, Beneficial State Bank, Bank of the West, um, Clean Energy Credit Union, Self-Help. All of these are are fossil fuel free and uh, many of them are mobilizing this capital directly for climate change mitigating solutions. So they're actually investing in resiliency and um a future that we all want to be a part of. For those with direct contribution plans, so 401ks, 403bs, I would ask for an ESG fund, Environmental, Social, and Government Governance Fund, one that is preferably fossil fuel free, but at the very least underweights the extractive industries. Um, I would choose a fossil fuel free insurance um, like Lemonade. I mean, there's talk about disruption happening. Um, you know, insurance companies represent roughly one third of um, asset ownership, and they both underwrite that climate risk and they invest. Um, and they can they have a choice of in their investing. They can invest um, for the solutions, or they can invest for the activities that are exacerbating climate change. Um, and don't forget, it's your money, whether <laughs> it's in a pension fund <laughs> or, your, or the savings, or it's in your bank account. It's your money, and it's doing one of two things: it's causing harm or bringing about healthy communities. So take charge of it. Um, that's what I can tell anyone listening, um, whether you're um, a current student or um, a professional working, um, whether you're a household or you're a company, business, startup, um, small, large, pu- public, private, you can take charge of that money. And presumably there are resources online for helping to guide people and how to best um, invest that money? Absolutely. And I have put a lot of those resources on my website, um, MarilynWaite.com. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was yeah. teeing that up for you. <laughs> um, you know, I just have one one last question, which um, is about our, our shared connection here. You know, we're both uh, affiliated with Princeton University and institutions like Princeton have a tremendous amount of money. Um, in the case of Princeton, uh, a large endowment. There's been a lot of discussion over the last several years by students and others that Princeton should divest from fossil fuel um, supporting funds and proactively invest in green funds. Um, It it sounds like um, you're an advocate for that and that that's something that would be very positive for the environment. So I would follow the lead of Middlebury and gradually wind down fossil fuel holdings. I mean, they were also originally against um, any form of shifting their portfolios. Um, I think the GMO analysis and others are clear. When you divest from oil or chemicals, um, it will cost you a few tiny basis points of deviation. Um, And so there's really um, there's no reason um, financially to to keep um, coal assets today. So it just makes good financial sense as well. Um, And then for those assets that you hold um, that are, for example, with utilities, so supposedly source agnostic firms, work with them um, to fund and finance that transition. Um, So swapping, you know, uh, coal plants for wind farms, for example. I think um, there could be a more active role in that transition as well, which is also um, teeing up the corpus or that endowment for long-term sustainability. Great. Well, Marilyn, thank you so much for all of this um, practical advice. I know I personally need to go look at my bank account. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, really fascinating conversation. Um, I, I want to wish you the best of luck with all of your efforts in sustainable finance and beyond. 
Thank you, Catherine. Marilyn Waite is a sustainable finance expert and author of the book, Sustainability at Work, Careers That Make a Difference. Please follow her on Twitter at Waite Marilyn. That's W-A-I-T-E-M-A-R-I-L-Y-N. Or her website, www.marilynwaite.com. To our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google Podcast apps.